Let's face it, Brit happens. Success is rarely a straight line. It's a journey with many twists, turns, potholes, and unwelcome detours. The secret, however, lies in how we react. Keep listening to learn how to effectively respond to life's curveballs, improve your resilience, and how winners pivot from setbacks to success. I'm your host, Brittany Sharpton. Let's get started. I am super excited to warmly welcome Representative Byron Donalds, who is a two-time elected Florida State Representative representing District 80, which is in Southwest Florida for those who are unfamiliar with Amazing Sunshine State. And he announced earlier this year that he is running for Congress, District 19. So first of all, Byron, congratulations on successfully being elected two times in the past, and I wish you the absolute best during your campaign and this bid. Welcome. Listen, thanks for having me. Uh, Campaign's always a crazy thing, but I'm glad I got a chance to join you this afternoon. Yes, yes. So we would obviously come back to that later, but I just want our audience to know that you're more than just a politician. He's a regular guy like us in the sense of he has a family, a professional career, hobbies, so how's the family? I think last time I saw one of them had committed your sons or was contemplating committing to my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's still contemplating, but I'll tell you, Dartmouth is stepping in real hard and they're trying to, to get him to go to Dartmouth. I mean, my oldest son, I'm just proud of him. You know, he he just has a real opportunity to to frankly be better than his father, which is what I always want for him. But then to really just take, you know, the life that he has and make the best of it. So whether it's UPenn, whether it's Dartmouth, I'll be proud of him. Um, But I know you have a preference. So, you know, maybe I'll just say UPenn for now. Hey, we got the half of the colors, the blue on. So that's what, Mason? All right. It's my oldest son. Okay. All right. Mason, Damon, and Darren. So I love Naples, but only I've only gone to La Playa Resort, which is beautiful and gorgeous. So how did you get from Brooklyn to Naples? Ooh, well, it's really from Brooklyn to Tallahassee to Naples. So out of out of high school, I went to Florida A&M uh, University in Tallahassee, Florida, historically black college. Uh, I was at Florida A&M for three years. Then I transferred to Florida State, finished my, my bachelor's work at Florida State. Uh, the real story, I'll, I'll give it for your audience. The real story is in college, I had too much fun at FAMU, probably a little too much fun. And, you know, my grades were really struggling. I wasn't focused. I wasn't serious. And a friend of mine had actually transferred to Florida State the previous semester, and I hadn't seen him for a while. And I was walking through FSU's campus one day, and I was like, man, where you been? He's like, I transferred to FSU. And I was like, well, why'd you transfer to FSU? And he goes, because your credits transfer, but your GPA doesn't transfer. And so, like, a light bulb went on. I was like, wow, I didn't know you do that. So um, I investigated it, found out that was legit, um, and then I transferred to FSU and uh, really just, you know, got my life back on track. And so that's how, that's, that's Tallahassee years, six years okay. there. And then my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, she had moved to Bonita Springs after graduation. This is 2002. And I came down to visit her that year for the Christmas holidays. And when I was dropping her off at work, uh, her office was in downtown Naples. All I saw were banks and brokerage houses. Mm-hmm. And 
at that time, the job market was terrible. This was the, the recession after 9-11. And it was either go back home to New York or try this place called Naples. And, you know, at the time, everybody was was old. And so I was like, well, I don't see young people. If I'm going to try to get somewhere and start a career, mm-hmm. let, me, let me start here. That's how I got to Naples. And you've been there ever since. So now that's been almost 20 years? 17. Don't age me too much. 17. I mean, even though he looks amazing, skin is nice, it's that's true. That's a blessing. Do you still serve on the Florida Gulf Coast board? No, not anymore. When I got into the legislature, I dropped all my uh, all my boards because the legislature, even though they say it's part time, it's really full time. And it's a lot of work that goes into it. So when I got elected, I just wanted to make sure I was focused on my job, representing my district and then also keeping my career afloat. So because OK, I was going to make a joke how you guys tried to make a comeback on the basketball football, which is my favorite sport by far. Not so much, but hey, I commend I commend the effort. I'm not talking, I know Miami's not talking about college football right now. You know, see, I'm not a bandwagoner. Actually, one of my favorite people, my brother's college uh, roommate, Spencer Atkins, is from Naples, and he reps hard, but he's also a U fan. So, anywho, let's get to the. <laughs> Trying to have love on the podcast. I'm not going to say anything else. If we can only read, we can read the body language. But Uh I appreciate that. Okay. So I want to get to the crux of Brit Happens, where I focus on identifying people in the community who have distinguished themselves by overcoming significant obstacles. And just like others who I've interviewed, they've had their fair share. And you had as well. So... I have to admit, Byron, I was intrigued and surprised to know that a Black man was elected not once, but two times in a quite overwhelmingly white district. I think maximum 9% Black population. So how did you overcome that obstacle? Well, I would tell people all the time that, you know, Southwest Florida in particular, but I think a lot of the country has really become a meritocracy. You know, I think that people, what they want to do today, especially, is really align themselves with what your political philosophies are, what your work philosophies are, what your family philosophies and values are. And I think that if you have similar values, that people will rally around you. You know, and I'm, I'm a conservative, <clears throat> very conservative. And so, you know, when I started getting involved in politics uh, about 10 years ago here in Southwest Florida, you know, got a chance to just meet a lot of people in the community. And, you know, I've always been consistent with my politics. So when I ran for office, it wasn't a thing where the people were just like, well, who is this guy? They had already, they knew who I was. And so it was easy for them to want to support me um, and get me elected and support me again. And so I, I think the transition from just a citizen to being in politics to then being elected in politics it's never smooth because politics is crazy. It's one of the craziest things you could ever get into. <laughs> you know, as long as you, you're, as long as you're consistent in your values and what you believe in and what you stand for, people will support you. You know, I think today in America, what people don't want to support are people who are not authentic. I think they value authenticity more than anything else. So you're term limited. Yeah. And like we mentioned that you are campaigning hard for Congress. What made you decide that's the next step? Well, I actually have four more years I could serve in the Florida legislature. Well, not anymore because qualifying just ended. So I've given up my seat. (laughs) Now, you know, I think that when I ran, the biggest thing I wanted to work on was education reform. And in the Florida legislature, we actually got a lot accomplished in my four years. 
um, you know, we started a, a education savings account, which allows, you know, parents, no matter where they're from or where they, where they live and, or how much money they have, it gives them real purchasing power in education. Uh, it actually gives a scholarship of about $6,700, $6,800 really per year so that a parent can go and choose the school that they want for their child, or they can go to a traditional public school. That's one of the key things I campaigned on. And we got that accomplished in, in Tallahassee. Um, I've also had the opportunity to work on criminal justice reform, which is something that um, is, is, it's been a passion of mine because I think when you're talking about our justice system, what you really want to see is a situation where when people offend, um, they have to pay the price, of course, but at the same time, they can come back into society and become Americans and citizens again. And I think, you know, I've been working on those kind of reforms. But our area over here in Southwest Florida is very conservative. We're actually going to elect our fifth congressman in 10 years, which in a lot of parts of the country is unheard of. You know, members of Congress in other parts of the country stayed for like 30 years, right. let alone us going through five in, in a 10 year span. And I think that we need somebody who's has the ability and the knowledge of the legislature to go and be successful. Uh, but then at the same time, as a as a black conservative, I think, you know, and a Republican, the one thing that the Republican Party, in my opinion, has failed at miserably is actually connecting and engaging with all voters in all communities. And so, you know, the, the platform being a member of Congress gives you, I would want to take that <clears throat> and really take the principles of, of conservatism to all voters, whether you're black, white, um, Mexican, Puerto Rican, Guatemalan, Peruvian, I don't, I don't say Hispanic because, you know, you know, it's just different nationalities, different cultures, different countries. And so I think, but it's important to take those values everywhere. And so that's why I decided to run for Congress. And you mentioned being conservative. And I, and I know that also on your site, or I was reading an article where you said out of the six other candidates, I believe one recently dropped out, you were the most conservative. So in addition to that, what makes you think or how are you going to beat these other six because this is a competitive race um you know honestly you know campaigns are it's, it's like guerrilla marketing that's what political campaigns are you know i've always believed that in any election you know if things are relatively equal um you know money name id the the most charismatic candidate wins i've always believed that and i think that when you compare me to my opponents i think number one yeah, I'm just more charismatic than they are. And I think they know that when it comes to just being able to actually explain the details of what conservatism really is and really the bedrock of, of the country, um, I communicate those ideals just far better than they can. And, and frankly, they know that too. Uh, I, I think the other, the other part though is really important is I have a real strong track record in my area over here and I have a lot of support of people who've been involved in politics for a long time. And then the last part is that I, I do think that, you know, Republicans as well, they want to expand the party. And I think there's a, there's a real legitimacy to that. There are Republican voters who want to have people who are conservative, but also that are more of a reflection of what the rest of the country looks like. And I, I think that that gives me a leg up and advantage over my opponents. And I'm happy that you brought that up because you've also said that you are a constitutionalist. Mm -hmm. So what, for our listeners, what does that mean? Uh, <clears throat> that means that you, you, that in the bedrock of, in, in how you view public policy, how you view the federal government, that you um, adhere to the principles of the United States constitution. I think what gets lost sometimes 
in the modern day, you know, back and forth between Republicans and Democrats is that our country was founded really to make sure that the people were free from governmental tyranny, whether it was monarchies, which is what they had to deal with with King George and the British Kings, whether it was oligarchies, uh, whether it was dictatorships, what the framers of the country always wanted was a country that, that really supported the movement and the ability of a free people. Uh, that's why we have separation of powers. That's why at the federal level, uh, governmental powers are actually limited and defined. Uh, they didn't want a federal government to be able to engage and make decisions in all aspects of society. And the reason why they didn't believe in that and the reason why I don't believe in it is because the federal government's too far removed from, you know, the city of Miami. It's too far removed from Collier County here in Naples. And so how can they make decisions for each city in America? How can they make decisions for each county in America when they're not engaged in the intricacies that are happening on the local level or even on the state level? Uh, so the so federal power has to be um, <clears throat> constrained. It has to be put into, into some respects a box where it focuses on those things and no more. And, and that's really what the basis of constitutionalism is. Uh, the second part is really a, a, a historical understanding and protection of individual liberties and constitutional rights. I think if you go on back to when the, when the Constitution was written, the Bill of Rights would, the Bill of Rights was was crucial to the passage of the Constitution in the states at the time. It wouldn't have been ratified by the by the states if it weren't for uh, freedom of speech, freedom of, of assembly, freedom to petition. Uh, Second Amendment protections, uh, protect you know the right to bear arms, um, freedom from search and seizure, freedom from not have being able not freedom from not having to have to quarter troops or have federal officials in your home against your will. Like these are all the things that they have battled against, and if you really look at world history, those are the types of principles. Whether it's Magna Carta or the the glorious restorations of 1688. Those are the, the principles that they used to create our constitution because they'd seen world history. They'd seen what happened when governments are unchecked, when they have the ability to run amok and run over the power of individual people in their lives. So in light of the recent events, obviously there's events that have spurred protests and demonstrations. Some people would disagree with that. What, what do you think that by definition, we need to protect the constitution or your, your conservatism meaning keeping things more the same. So how do we reconcile those two? Well, I, I think the first part is if you look at what's going on in our communities with policing, mm -hmm. um, the thing I think really needs to happen is that local communities take control of what's going on at home. It, it starts with your police chiefs. It starts with your sheriffs. It starts with your mayors and your city councils. You know, here, here's the one most, the one interesting fact is that if we're having real issues and we are having issues with police brutality in America, that actually doesn't start at the federal level. That starts at the local level. That's your police chief and how they hire. That's their police chief and how they handle training. That's your city council and what they what they what they agree upon with how policing is going to be handled. Depending on how the city's structured, if it's a strong mayor type of governmental structure, all this stuff falls underneath the mayor of that city or that or or, or, or that area. And so to then say that Washington has to do something is actually an inappropriate use of power. Because all Washington can do, frankly, is say, we'll give you money if you change this. But the real activism, the real change actually happens on the local level. And, and, and that's a simple because 
if you have a motivated political body, no matter who we're talking about, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, young, old, uh, middle-aged, doesn't matter. If you're active politically and you're strong in numbers, then you have the ability at the ballot box to change representation. If you could change representation, then you can change the values that govern your area. And, and, it, and really that principle is the bedrock of conservatism. It's, it's an understanding that powers have to be diffused between the local level, the, the state level, and the federal level. Um, I think with, with current situation with policing, the federal role is actually quite small. It's local governments that have major power and authority in what's going on. What happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis? Yes, it falls at the feet of the mayor. It falls at the feet of the police chief. But how does it fall at the feet of, 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 uh, of the senators that represent Minnesota? They don't vote on police policies. They don't pass those policies. They don't hire, hire the police that, that patrol our streets. And so I think, you know, for young people who want to be active in solving these issues, um, they should definitely be focused at the local level. To be blunt, voting for who's going to be president is going to have little to do with what happens with policing in our communities, because that's not the job and the role of the federal government. And you mentioned in your response, which you're helping me along, Representative, about the different issues that should be at the forefront. I know one of yours is immigration. So in addition to there's infrastructure, healthcare, education, what made immigration be at the top of your list out of all the other issues that we have to deal with? Well, I think, you know, immigration, the issue we have is that we have a situation where depending on who's in charge or who's in power at the federal level depends on how well we follow our current immigration law. Our immigration laws have been passed over several decades. America's always had an immigration policy. Uh, you know, the, what's not understood properly in the history is that there was a time where there was free-flowing immigration into America. That's never been the case. I mean, even if you take into account Ellis Island and, and the vision of what people view Ellis Island to be, give me your poor, your tired, your, you know, your, 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 your shuttered masses, if you will. During that time period, there was a staircase that's still there at Ellis Island. If you couldn't walk up, up, that, up that staircase and walk down that staircase unassisted, they would send you back to the country you came from. If you didn't have a job in America or you didn't have somebody who was going to sponsor you to take care of you financially, they sent you back to the country you came from. You did, weren't allowed to come into America. And so I think it's important to understand with all the issues that we face, whether it's op, uh, uh, lanes for opportunity for the poorest among us um, in our urban areas, if you take immigration seriously, like I do, then what you're saying is we want to make sure that the pathways of success are there for American citizens. We want to make sure that they have those opportunities. And if we continue to take on people into the country in an illegal fashion, what we're doing actually is clogging those lines of opportunity. It's making it harder and harder for some of our, our own citizens to be able to be successful in America because the, 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 the services of government are then used for more people than, than even accounted for through taxpayer appropriation. But it's really simpler than that. You know, when I talk with young kids, I always ask them a simple thing. I say, you know, whose mom cooks well? And they all raise their hand like, my mom cooks great. Okay. And I ask them, can I come over for dinner? And they're like, well, yeah, you can come over. All right. I said, so if it's good, can I come back tomorrow? They're like, yeah. All right. If it's really good, can I just stay on the couch? And then they start saying, well, I don't know. And then, then I say, well, can I just hang out for a couple of days? They're like, no, you got to go home. And I'm like, why? And they're like, because we invited you for dinner, but that doesn't mean you get to stay. 
And I said, okay, well, if those are the rules for your house, then how come they can't be the rules for a country? It, it's it. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Right, analogy. And I agree there needs to be some set of consistent standards across the board, regardless of the country of origin. Now, as you know, I live in a community where immigration helped build one of the most popular cities in the world and played a significant role in making our community successful. So for the majority of my listeners who are local for now, what specifically do you recommend in terms of reform? Like when you're elected, like what sort of reform can you give us some examples or one example so we can get to? So one key example is fixing our our visa system, entry exit. So the biggest issue we have in immigration other than the southern border is visa overstays. Uh, People will sign up for a student visa, work visa, whatever the case might be. And on that visa form, when you sign it, it says you're allowed in the United States for X period of time. Um, When that period of time is over, people stay. Well, you acknowledged when you came to America that you were going to be here for a certain period of time and you've overstayed that. And so as a government, we've not done a very good job of actually upholding the visa process and making sure that, okay, we know you're here for six months to do whatever it is you you said you were going to do. Now it's time for you to you. Now it's time to return you to your country of origin. Okay. And I think that's one of the key things that we definitely have to clean up. I would say, though, the biggest misconception is not immigration or no immigration. That, that's not accurate. It's lawful immigration versus unlawful immigration. I believe in lawful immigration. I think as long as you do it the right way and you come to America, come on in, be successful. But as a country, what we can't do is allow unlawful immigration to happen and exist and not uphold the law. Because if we do that, then we can just change whatever laws we want based upon who's in power. And you can't have a society based upon that. Agreed. And you brought me to my next point about draining the swamp. This Uh, is something I wholeheartedly, I encourage, I am with you 110% on this. But Representative, honestly, how are we going to drain the swamp when there's so much lack of transparency in D.C.? Um, term limits. I'll just be straight with you. That's, that's the number one way. Uh, it's interesting that the federal government, the members of Congress refuse to term limit themselves in the Florida legislature. We're term limited. You have eight years. Mm -hmm. And I would tell you, even in Tallahassee, there's a swamp that exists because the swamp is really just relationships. It's the lobbyists that you have relationships with. It's members of the media, frankly, that you have relationships with that will run stories to the benefit of you and that will also run stories to trash you. Mm -hmm. Um, It cuts both ways. Um, You have institutional relationships, members of of the bureaucracy who are staff who've been there for 20 years. And and, and typically how it's created is, you know, if Brittany got elected to the city council, the people who helped you get elected are part of your team. The staff that you meet with, they become part of your team. The members of the media, that you have great relationships with, they all become vested in your success. And in some respects, you can become vested in their success. And that just begins to grow the higher you, the higher level you go. I think the mm-hmm. way you end that is through congressional term limits. It's something that I think we definitely should have had years ago. Um, all Virtually all voters support it. But the reason why it doesn't get done is because members of Congress have amassed power amongst themselves. And who gives up power willingly? Most people don't. But I think that's exactly what we need to do in America. Right. And you mentioned that. I think in your district, you all have had one every two years, which is 
not typical, right? Not typical, no. But let's just say, okay, we implement term limits. Yes. And the people who are currently in office, for example, the most, a recent example is the administration not wanting to disclose who were the recipients of half a trillion dollars worth of taxpayer-backed uh, coronavirus loans. Even right. I think a couple of weeks or months ago, Marco Rubio said that, no, we need transparency. So besides term limits, once you're actually in office, like how are we, because that's something out of, I've, I've read your platform and I'm learning more about this now. Representative, what can we do in those situations? Like, Well, I definitely think that, you know, when it comes to taxpayer money, we should definitely be transparent. Um, on all levels, it doesn't matter. I think we've got to do that. Um, it is an interesting situation with the PPP loans because if you're a publicly traded company and you're taking those dollars, does it have a potential impact on your stock price? That's a concern. Um, the thing that is also concerning is not so much the public having that information, and I think they should, but I think it's what we're starting to see with you know these public shaming campaigns. I mean, look at what happened to Shake Shack. You know, I think they took. Uh, was it 10 or $25 million and they were publicly shamed. Like, how could, how dare you take that? But, you know, like my career is in finance. So here's the deal. Restaurants typically don't have much working capital at all. They don't keep much on hand. It kind of is the constant traffic of people coming in. So if nobody's coming in, most restaurants shut down and probably don't reopen again after three to four months if they don't have working capital. And so I definitely want the public to have that information. Transparency in, in government programs and government dollars is critical. But I think we also got to understand what's happening in our country right now where people are taking this information of, and now they're shaming CEOs or shaming corporations. I mean, let's be clear. Every business does what they have to do to stay in business. Because if there's no business, if there's, if there's no going concern, uh, their families aren't going to be able to survive. All their employees are not going to be able to survive. And that has far more impacts than just knowing or just, or not even so much knowing, but shaming companies that took loans or didn't take loans. Uh, but I think that information should be out there. I am a small business owner, have employees to feed and they have families. You got to help the small business owners too. Well, I'll tell you real quick on that one. I'm, here's what I'm going to tell you. I think okay. that you know, one of the biggest political arguments we've been having in the country mm-hmm. uh, is this is this uh, not so much a battle? It's an ideological argument between capitalism and socialism, and it's actually interesting. If you look at coronavirus, this was the time where you would say socialism had its opportunity to prove that it could work, and it can't. And the reason why it can't is because government can't make the decisions necessary to make sure that the overwhelming vast majority of Americans can put food on their table, can get to work. Um, and can do all the things necessary to be successful. Um, we saw government go into overdrive in response to the coronavirus. And even though leadership um, and members of Congress and the president, they try to do everything they can to get money out as quickly as they could into the economy to keep businesses afloat and to keep employees afloat, what we saw, what we actually witnessed was dislocation. It wasn't possible for them to make all those decisions. And so capitalism, although sometimes it's not appreciated for the beauty it really creates, what it does is through all of our millions and trillions of decisions you and I make every single day, it is actually the voluntary distribution of capital. Mm -hmm. It allows people to gain capital, amass it, to acquire services by the fruits of their labor, by the value of that labor, 
And that kind of a system that moves independent of government, frankly, is what creates the wealth in all aspects of life, whether it's even small amounts of wealth for the poor, some amounts of wealth for middle income people, a lot of amounts of wealth, obviously, for the rich. But that's what perpetuates our country and our society. So it's been interesting to watch. And I think, obviously, socialism, I think, has come up a big failure in all this. <laughs> I read somewhere where you're everything that the fake news media says doesn't exist. So just out of that, basically a Black conservative. And I can understand that challenge. There are many people in my family, obviously I'm Black, who are Republican and who have served very active roles in the party. And it was a masterful Republican strategist, Lee Atwater, who basically told the party like 30 years ago, in order to be sustainable, that you need to be inclusive and basically recruit uh, more Black people. So we kind of touched upon this before. So this is going to be twofold to be efficient. Um, how do you propose helping to make the tent more inclusive, particularly with some of your stances? Yeah. And there are, for example, I'm just going to name three very well-known, well-liked, highly respected Black Republicans who don't support the president. I'm going to Condoleezza Rice. Colin Powell, Michael Steele. So what's, in your, in your opinion, what's wrong with their thinking? Or what do you know that they may not know that would change their thoughts on the president? I mean, I don't know them. I've never got a chance to meet them. I have met the president. I've met him a couple, I've been in the room with him a couple of times. I met him uh, for the first time about seven, eight months ago. Um, I mean, look, the president's one of those guys I will tell you, first to talk about him, then back to your question. He's one of those people that's kind of like the life of the party, you know, like behind the scenes and the stuff people watch on CNN or Fox or MSNBC. I mean, he's that guy that's in the party. He's having a conversation. You walk up. He says, hey, Brittany, come on in here. Let me introduce you to this person. And then, they start, and then he just continues that conversation. And as people keep coming, he just expands it. Mm-hmm. That's just how he is personally when I interacted with him. I mean, he was very cordial. I never felt like I never felt like I shouldn't have even been in the room with him. I never felt like I was slighted, for, you know, for who I am. And so, you know, that's what I would tell people who don't who want to know something about him personally. Um, I can't speak to what they feel, how they feel about him, because I don't know them. And I, I learned a long time ago not to justify or try to judge people based on their stances without walking a day in their shoes. Because frankly, I don't want anybody trying to do that right, to me. I was going to say, that's the exact same thing that you probably face all the time. But there are Republicans who stand by, like you say, the, the, the cornerstone, I forgot the phrase that you use, of the tenets of the party, but can't support the president. So what are your thoughts? You are obviously a conservative, a Republican, but you are supportive of the president. I am. Where where is there the disconnect between those two? Well, I think what the the biggest disconnect is that people are getting caught up in words and tweets as opposed to actions. You know, I mean, you can say whatever you want, but I judge people by what they do, not just by what they say. And I think that, you know, some people don't like the president's tweeting. Okay, but what has he actually done? I mean, what did he actually do for HBCUs? I mean, he's done put more funding into HBCUs than any president in the history of the country. Uh, if you look at, you know, criminal justice reform and he worked with Senator Tim Scott on, he's undone a lot of the bad public policy that's affected the black community with respect to criminal justice reform. Uh, if you look at the uh, opportunity zones that actually fall into a lot of our areas in the urban areas where there's new capital coming into our communities, he worked with, again, Senator Tim Scott to get that done, something that wasn't done by other presidents in the past. And so I think for him specifically, 
I support the man because he's his actions have shown me what he values and what he doesn't. I mean, you can get caught up into a line of a tweet, but I think what's really happened in America, which is concerning to me, is that people are making decisions about people and who they are as people based upon a tweet or a comment or a political position without learning who that person is. I think that's, I, I think that's not a good thing for the country. Now, to your other point about expanding the tent, if you will, I think that, you know, for Black people, we generally actually are quite conservative. Many Black people are conservative. But I, don't, I do also think that Black people have never felt comfortable that there was a home for them in the Republican Party. I think that's clear. Anybody who says otherwise isn't paying attention. And I think that it's important that it's not just that Republicans show up in September trying to ask for votes because, frankly, they're not going to get them because they never built relationship. They never took time to be in our communities and, and try to learn what's really ailing uh, the Black agenda or the, or the productivity of Black people moving forward. And my time in politics, even though I am conservative, um, that's one of the things that I pride myself on always making sure to do is learn. It's not just learning because I, I lived it growing up in the inner city, but knowing the things that will actually help perpetuate the, the, the experience in America for black kids who grew up like I grew up and frankly, white kids who grew up like I grew up and Hispanic kids who grew up like I grew up. And I think that it's our, if our party takes that mantle and really engages and invests in, in our urban corridors, and in the black community, I think they'll begin to see people start to say like, you know what, man, these Republicans actually aren't all bad because they're trying to actually fix the things, frankly, that we're always talking about. But, but last thing I'll say on this, the thing that always bugs me when we- No, I love it, Come on. No, seriously, the things that bugs me about election cycles is every four years, all the, the things that ail our urban communities and black America always comes up. And politicians for years have saying, I'm gonna, fix this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But nothing changes. So my attitude is, well, what we've done, if you continue to do what you've always done, you'll always be where you've always been. I don't choose to do that. And so I know as a Republican, the things I've worked on in Tallahassee are to help the poorest among us. And I think that as a party, it is incumbent upon us to really tell that story and not just tell a story, actually invest and build relationships amongst people in the black community and in our poor communities across the country. And I think that as a party, from a political perspective, you'll see results from that. Right. I'm a huge Jeb Bush fan. And I think that he did a tremendous job in initiating equity and social economic quality of life matters. I know you mentioned before uh, minorities are blacks in poverty, but, and that's important, but coming from someone who doesn't have the story of started from the bottom, now we're here. I'm huge on economic empowerment and economic development because I think that not all Black people are also poor. So what initiatives do you have, or why do you think that some of these social economic issues have stalled in the U.S. and in Florida here, our home state? Uh, real quick, great reference to a good Drake song. I love that song. That's my oh. song. I started from the bottom. Now we're here. Trying shout, to Shout to Drake. But okay. um, <laughs> join the podcast, Jersey, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple things, man. I think you know. So Jeb, when he was governor of Florida, he was the governor that pushed for school choice, and so I think the beginning of of that really starts with education. You know, my mom, you know, for her, she struggled and she sacrificed many things financially in her life to just get me into better schools. You know, I started in public school. 
She didn't think that it was going to work for me. She pulled me out. Um, I went to pri- I went to a small black private school. Then I went to um, a, a, a all white Quaker middle school. Then I went to a Catholic high school, which was predominantly black in New York. For my mom, it was just finding the best academic environment. And so I think what Jeb Bush started in Florida and what we've taken from his leadership was expanding school choice, expanding opportunities for for really the poorest among us to be able to get academic opportunities. And I think that that has begun to yield some results, but there's there's more to do. I think we have to do real reforms in early learning education. Um, the, the word gap amongst kids who parents don't read to them versus kids that do. And I, I, that's not a racial thing. That's more of a socioeconomic thing. Right. That, that word gap is real and it's serious because by the time a child reaches the fourth grade, statistically speaking, they're never catching up. And so I think reforms in early learning are critical. Um, one of the things that we've done my last year in the legislature, which I think is really going to be important, is actually going back to different pathways towards high school graduation. You know, you know, Brittany, our generation, we were told we have to go to college to be successful. But what we've seen amongst our peers is that they went to college, got a job, hated it, <clears throat> or couldn't get a job, then they had to go get retrained and do something else. Mm-hmm. So we're actually going, in some respects, back to the past and saying, you know what? It is okay to go get credentialing in AC repair. It is okay to get credentialing in carpentry and construction, or it is okay to just get a regular high school diploma and go to college. I think you give people pathways to be successful early on that gives them the economic ability to be successful in life. Um, I think where as a Republican and really as a government, we got to get to is real reforms in, in criminal justice, real reforms in probation. And even something I've sponsored in, the, in Florida's budget is um, programming for for um, inmates so that when they come out, they can move to a, a career as opposed to reoffend and then back up in the system. I think that's a part of it. And then the last is healthcare. I think we got to do more in telemedicine, things to make healthcare cheaper for mm-hmm. citizens. And I think that my issue with what we've done in healthcare to this point is that when you bring government into that space and make them more and more of that space, what happens is costs rise, there's less flexibility, and people get less service and less purchasing power for their dollar. The best way to explain this, I think, is if you compare the cost of, of college education versus consumer electronics. We desire both of them, but the government is highly involved in higher education, so the cost gets higher and higher every year versus consumer electronics, where we're just out there buying what we want. And then companies are competing for our dollars. And so what happens? The products get better. And they also get cheaper. And I think we got to adopt those market forces and those market um, um, dynamics into healthcare, into education, because that gives them people, the poorest among us, it gives them more opportunity, it gives them more choices, and it gives them better services so that they can then move themselves and change their socioeconomic status in life. We're college graduates, but that's not the only way to be. I think some of the wealthiest people now are not necessarily even the best student. I mean, I'm all for entrepreneurship. There's different ways to get there, trades, as you mentioned. So just not being so confined in the box. Whether it's our political affiliation, what people write online, or their pathway to success. So yeah. I'm in agreement there. I know I went over, but it was getting good. That means I got to come back. That's all that means. I'm back for real. Okay, now. thank you. On the record, like I would love for you to come back. Seriously. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions. The first thing that comes out, just spit it out. 
The last thing that you ordered on Amazon? Gatorade. What flavor? Green apple. Wait, Gatorade has green apple now? You ain't no Gatorade has green apple? No, I Oh, I like the white flavor. I don't know what the flavor is. It's just white. Oh, like the Frost Wild Cherry? The fact that you know it to the T is hilarious. Listen, man, outside of politics, I train a lot. I play basketball. Like, I'm a regular person. I told you this. Green green apple, green apple Gatorade for the people out there. Okay. And I'm sure there's probably, like, a fan group on Facebook or something. Okay. If you can have one superpower, what would it be? Ooh. You know what? I want to take, I want to be, um, God, what was her name in X-Men? I want to be Jean Grey. I want to read minds and have telekinesis. I want all that. I want to be the Dark Phoenix. I love the specifics. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you had a 100% chance of succeeding, what would you attempt to do? Oh, be president. (laughs) You were like, duh. I would have answered faster if I would have heard you clearer. Oh, no. The the other one is is either that or um, I'd have played in the NBA. I'd have been an NBA player. That is two totally. Okay. I like them both. And yes, of course. How can people get in touch with you, Representative? It's easy now. Uh, Follow me on Twitter (laughs) at Byron Donalds. uh, Facebook.com slash Byron Donalds. Instagram is at Byron Donalds. Everything's at Byron Donalds. Like I got it all around me back here. Um, And then, uh, you know, my website, ByronDonalds.com. He's very Googleable, if that's a word. Yeah, you could Google me. I think my cell phone's on Google too. It's crazy. Oh yeah, I would probably get another one. But hey, I really enjoyed this. I'm definitely taking you up on your offer to return because there's so much that I would love to follow. We will see you in a couple of months. All right, y'all. Take it easy. Bye. Thank you guys so much for checking out today's episode of Brit Happens. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, or Google. You can also find me online at www.brithappens.com and on social media, Instagram or Facebook at Brittany Sharpton. See you next time.